Luke 24, 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their heads to the ground, faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you when he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day, rise, and he would rise on the third day. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Margaret. Before we look at the passage that Margaret read for us, let me pray. Father in heaven, we give you, thank you thanks for your word, for the truth that we find in it, for it is the authority of our lives. We give you thanks especially for this passage in Luke, in which the gospel writer recounts the marvelous resurrection of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us by your spirit to think about these things, the truths that are found in your word, or that you would help us to apply them to our lives. Help me to speak clearly and accurately about these things. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would change minds and transform hearts concerning Jesus. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. So like many of you, our family is in and out of Kennett multiple times a week, whether it's going to or from church or visiting my parents over in Unionville. With our frequent trips on and off of Route 1, we pass Union Hill Cemetery all the time. And our kids, uh, some of you know our kids, Penelope and Jasper, they've taken a recent interest in this place uh, that they like to call the place where the stones are sticking out of the ground. What is it? Why is it there? What is it used for? And when they, they start asking these questions, Carla and, I, Carla and I know, we know where this, this line of questioning is going. I'm sure as you guys sit there this morning, you have an idea of where this line of questioning is going. We're circling in on a conversation about, about death. What is a cemetery used for? And I imagine when I say the word death or bring up the idea of talking about death, especially talking about death to, to kids, some of you might squirm in your seats a little bit. To be honest, the topic is it's uncomfortable, to say the least. We don't like talking about that. For most of us, I'm guessing we see physical death as this inevitable reality. But I doubt it's a regular topic of conversation when you go to meet your girlfriends for lunch or you go uh, meet the, your guy friends for, for coffee. You're usually not asking Joe or Nancy, hey, have you considered your mortality lately? J.I. Packer, uh, writer and, and theologian, he, he says, death is being called the new obscenity. It's the nasty thing which no polite person nowadays will talk about in public. But death, even when unmentionable, it remains inescapable. 
The one sure fact of life is that one day, with or without warning, quietly or painfully, it is going to stop. Packer then asks, how will I then cope with the death, with death when it comes my turn? Isn't it ironic then, with our modern aversion to death, that God has put death on center stage in the Christian faith? For all who look on Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the cross is a, is a symbol of scandal, of shame, and of weakness, but the cross ultimately becomes our only reason for boasting as we boast in the Lord Jesus who saved us from sin by dying upon it. So how is it that Christianity takes the scandal and the sting out of death? Well, it's because death does not stand on center stage alone. It's Christ and his death and his resurrection. It's the fact that Jesus didn't stay dead but rose again. His resurrection then becomes our victory song. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The empty grave means that death is no longer our expectation, but that resurrection life is our new reality. And that's what we're going to consider this morning as we we look at this passage that Margaret read for us in Luke 24. That as we, we go to the cemetery this morning, as we examine the empty grave this morning, we see that death is no longer our expectation, but resurrection life is our new reality. We'll look at the passage in three parts. First, expecting death. Second, remembering Jesus' words. And three, marveling at the resurrection. Expecting death, remembering Jesus' words, and marveling at the resurrection, all to see how the empty grave has changed our expectation from one of death to one of resurrection life. So as we, as we start looking at this, I want to look at the broader context first of all. First off, uh, I'll start reading from chapter 23, verse 50, so we see kind of where our passage fits. Luke writes, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. They then returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus." So let's take a minute to consider the week that these women have had. In verse 10, Luke tells us who these women are. They're Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and and a few others. And one week ago, these women saw Jesus welcomed into Jerusalem like royalty, with the crowds chanting and celebrating his arrival as the Messiah. In a few short days, that jubilant crowd dwindles down to a faithful few, And these women had their world turned upside down as one of Jesus' own, Judas Iscariot, who we can only imagine these women knew well through their time with Jesus, would betray him, handing him over to the chief priests and the elders for a quick payday. They were there when Jesus was tried and convicted and sentenced to death under Pontius Pilate. 
And it's Luke who tells us that it was these women who stood at a distance and watched their friend and their Christ die. The two Marys, Joanna and the others, they looked on as Jesus was laid in the grave. And with these horrific and heartbreaking events still fresh in their mind, they return home. And they begin preparing ointments and spices to anoint Jesus' body. You know, more than any other gospel writer, Luke writes like a historian. He's the one who, who tells us out of the chute that his goal is to get the facts straight, to write an orderly account so that his readers can be certain of the things that they have heard, be certain of the things that have happened concerning Jesus. So let me ask you this morning, based on the evidence that Luke provides, what would you say these women expected to find when they arrived at the tomb early that first day of the week? Everything, everything about this text tells us that they were expecting to find Jesus's dead body. Now, resurrection wasn't impossible. We find resurrection accounts in the Old Testament. We find Jesus resurrecting the dead in the New Testament. But these events were certainly the exception, not the rule. When someone died and was sealed in a cemetery vault, you usually didn't have to worry about them getting up and walking off on you. You know, dead, dead men are pretty good about staying put. So if you were in this group, what goes through your mind early that first day of the week as you navigate the path leading up to the tomb? From a distance, you notice that the stone is rolled back. What do you think? Maybe somebody has broken in. Maybe somebody has taken the body. Other, other gospel writers certainly bring this point to bear. Maybe we're in the wrong place. Not likely. Luke tells us that these women saw where Jesus was laid. They knew where they were going. Whatever might have been going through their minds, they decide to investigate. They enter the tomb, and we can only expect a wave of confusion and curiosity overcome them. It's empty. They turn to one another as they stand there, bewildered in, in the tomb, and we can only imagine the level of perplexity that comes across these women when they failed to find anything in this grave. Certainly, they failed to find Jesus there. The expectation was death, and yet there was no dead man. There was no Jesus. And at this point in the story, we're really thankful that we get some divine intervention as two men, who can only be angels by their appearance, meet these women in the tomb to shed some light, pun totally intended, on the situation. Taken back by their appearance, Luke tells us that the women fall down to the ground, astonished by what they see. But it's not just the appearance of these men that, that take the women back, that give them pause. But it's, it's the question that these angelic men pose to the women. They ask, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. He is risen. Listen to how Luke tells this conversation in verses 6 through 9. He says, this is what the angelic men say to the women. Remember, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. 
And returning from the tomb, they told all of these things to the eleven and to all the rest. In all their confusion over what they had not found in the tomb that morning, expecting to find Jesus' dead body, these angelic men turn the women's attention back to Jesus' own words that he spoke to his disciples while he was with them, words that these women likely knew well as they traveled with Jesus. We know that they knew them because Luke tells us that they remembered. They remembered these words. In each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Jesus three times foretells the events that would take place in Jerusalem during this Passover celebration, how he would be beaten and suffer and how he would die and how he would ultimately rise on the third day. In Luke, we find these passages in chapters 9 and 18. And it's these instances of Jesus predicting his own resurrection that the angelic figures point the women back to. We, we can imagine the conversation going something like this. The angels appear in the midst of the group's bewilderment and ask, why are you looking for Jesus here? The women answer, well, well this is where we put him. Wouldn't, wouldn't this be where he is? The angels, no. Don't you remember? Don't you remember how Jesus told you that he would rise on the third day after he suffered and died? Don't you know, you know, I don't know how many of your friends make it a habit of just hanging around cemeteries, but we're telling you you're looking for him in the wrong place. He's not here. You're not going to find him among these stones. It's this idea of remembering that becomes a very important part of the final chapter in Luke's gospel. I think it goes hand in hand with perhaps the bigger theme that runs through the, the whole gospel, that, uh, that theme of fulfillment, that God will do what he says he is going to do. And when he makes a promise, he's going to keep his promise, that his word is true and sure. If we look at the resurrection encounters in Luke 24, beginning with the women in the tomb, later with Cleopas and presumably his wife on the Emmaus Road, and then finally with the disciples, we see that they are all called to remember to remember the words of Christ and how he would suffer and die and rise again. Look what, look what Luke writes about these later encounters, starting in, ver, in chapter 24, verse 25. He says, And he, the resurrected Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. A few lines later in verse 44, we read, Then he, again the resurrected Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Jesus' resurrection is a testimony that God fulfills his purposes. And we, like the disciples then, need to be reminded of this because we are quick to forget. We'll think more about that in a moment. But first, we need to see that it wasn't just the women who were at the tomb that morning that were in need of reminding. 
of Jesus' words. They now head back with the task of reminding the others, the 11 and uh, the other disciples, the ones of what they had seen or, or rather not seen in the tomb that, that morning and what they had heard from the angelic men. Luke writes, beginning in verse 10, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Some of you know my four-year-old daughter, Penelope. Uh, some of you do not, but that's okay. Get to know her, she's fantastic. She's been working very, very hard lately on her stand-up comedy routine, practicing her jokes. Uh, so needless to say, thanks to my mother, she had a great time with April Fool's Day this year. My mom taught her what an April Fool's joke was. Um, so thanks, mom. Um, but So she had a lot of fun with April Fool's, but Carl and I are certainly glad it was over. But I was thinking about her a lot while I was preparing and working in this passage this week because the women come back with their report from the tomb, and the others, they think it's nonsense. It's the bad April Fool's joke. Certainly, whatever you're saying did not happen. And it's here that we discover something that's, that's really important. The apostles and the other disciples who were with Jesus, who knew Jesus, well, they expected Jesus to be dead too. They weren't anticipating a resurrection. When Jesus died on the cross, their hopes that he was truly the Messiah, the Son of God, died as well. Because what kind of Messiah dies? Now Luke doesn't tell us exactly why, whether it was a spark of hope or a spark of spite to prove these women's story, this, the group of women's story wrong. But Peter rose and he ran to the tomb, perhaps to see with his own eyes that it was a false story, that it was a bad joke. But what does Peter find? Nothing. Not exactly nothing. He, he, finds, he finds the linen cloths. But he certainly does not find a body. He certainly does not find Jesus. And Luke tells us that he went home marveling at what had happened. I think oftentimes we might read this account in our Bibles and see that word marveling and take it to mean that Peter walked away from the tomb that morning in faith, confident that Jesus had indeed defeated death and that he was thinking, wow, he really did it. He really did it. But I think we're probably better off to see that this word marveling indicates that Peter walked away from the tomb that morning quite unsure of what he saw and what the situation was. He was turning these things over in his mind, contemplating the situation. And with the time that we have left this morning, I want us to turn this passage over in our minds. I want us to marvel at the resurrection, to think about these things, and what Christ's resurrection means for us as it meant for his disciples then. In February of 2007, reports surfaced that a casket of Jesus and other members of his family had been discovered in a burial cave in a Jerusalem suburb. Filmmaker James Cameron produced a documentary on the findings claiming that DNA evidence would prove that this was, in fact, the burial cave of the family of Jesus of Nazareth. Needless to say, DNA evidence proves nothing. And like uh, this claim is like many others, this kind of stuff is not new. 
But it poses an interesting question. What if Jesus had stayed dead? What if he had not risen from the grave that morning? Again, J.I. Packer writes, suppose that Jesus, having died on the cross, had stayed dead. Suppose that like Socrates or Confucius, he was now no more than a beautiful memory. What would it matter? We should still have his example and his teaching. Wouldn't that be enough? Packer asks, enough for what? Not for Christianity. Had Jesus not risen but stayed dead, the bottom would drop out of Christianity. For four things would then be true. First, to quote the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Second, there is no hope of our rising either. We must expect to stay dead too. Third, if Jesus is not risen, then he is not reigning, and he will not return. And everything in the Apostles' Creed, after suffered and was buried, will have to be struck out. Fourth, Christianity cannot be what the first Christians thought it was, fellowship with a living Lord who is identical with the Jesus that we find in the Gospels. The Jesus of the Gospels can be your hero, but he cannot be your savior. There's a lot for us to think about and to meditate on in what Packer says here, but the question as I read this that that rises to the top is this, is Jesus alive or dead? You think, well, that's a silly question. Jesus is alive. That's why we're here. That's why we're celebrating. And I agree. He is alive. That is the glorious truth that we celebrate today. But it's not whether or not we know that Jesus is alive intellectually or that we can confess that Jesus is alive with our mouths. Do we live as if Jesus is alive? Do we live lives that are shaped by the resurrection? Or are we like the women and like the 11 and like the others, living, are living as if Jesus is still dead in the tomb. Consider the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Living as if Jesus were still in the tomb means living under the weight and the guilt of our sin. You can picture the character of Christian in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. We then carry this burden on our back that is far too much for us to bear. It will indeed crush us. And you may confess the resurrection of Jesus, yet doubt in your heart that he has truly died for your sins and risen for your justification. You're hesitant to think that fellowship with God is possible. Certainly God won't accept me. I must do better. I must try harder. I must get my act together, then maybe, maybe there is hope for me. The truth of Jesus' death and resurrection is that the Father welcomes us with open arms, not because we are good enough, not because we have our act together, but because of Jesus. It is faith in Jesus that he alone in his life death, and resurrection is sufficient in himself for our salvation. In Christ, we come to the Father knowing that all who the Son sets free are truly free indeed. Living as if Jesus were still in the tomb means living as if this life is all that there is. It's living as if a physical, bodily resurrection isn't our reality in Christ. 
Consider Paul's words again from 1 Corinthians 15, this time verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul's pointing out here that Jesus' resurrection is only the first of many. He is the first of a greater harvest that is yet to happen. One of the wonderful assurances of the gospel is that there is glorious eternal life waiting for us when our time in this world is done. And that in the new heavens and the new earth, we will have glorified, resurrected physical bodies like our Lord Jesus. When the Lord says, behold, I am making all things new, that is true. And that is true for us. He is making us new. The book of Ecclesiastes says that God has written eternity on the hearts of men and women. Yet often we live, live life as if time is short, that what we see in front of us is all that there is. It's almost as if we're living this double life. Yes, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus over here. I confess the resurrection of Jesus. Yet all of these things over here, my family and my jobs, the bills I need to pay, the relationships that I need to manage, the schedule that I need to keep, these things are what occupies my thoughts and my time and my concerns. The one thing that might help us here is to know that Jesus' resurrection brings all areas of our life under the umbrella of resurrection life. All of these things that we've mentioned, our family, our friends, our work, our finances, the troubles and triumphs that we experience in the day-to-day things of life, they are all to be shaped and viewed through the lens of the resurrection. Again, we'll consider Paul's words from Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul here is pointing to the fact that that resurrection life is not only future, but it's present. That Jesus gives us assurance of resurrection life now as we are new creations, given new natures by the Spirit. Where we were once dead in our sins, God has made us alive in Christ, that we might live lives that not only bring glory to God, but lives that delight in God. You might ask, well, well how, do we, how do we do this? How do we bring all things under this umbrella of resurrection life? And I would say that God has already done that. In raising Jesus from the dead by the power of the Spirit, when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, resurrection life became the reality. We must remember that God has done this. We remember what God has done. What God has told us is true. We must remember what he says is true about resurrection life and not unnaturally dividing things out. If there are areas of our lives in which God has no power or control or that do not belong to him. I think examples of this come right out of our passage this morning. We are to develop these rhythms of remembering, rhythms and habits in life that remind us of our reality of resurrection life. Just as the angels reminded the women that morning at the tomb, as Jesus reminded Cleopas over dinner and the disciples as they gathered, they remembered what is true. We too must develop these rhythms of remembering that center on what God has said is true concerning the reality of the resurrection.
Now, I think there's something, as we close this morning, to be said about the role of daily Bible reading and prayer as some of these regular rhythms that we use to remember the realities of the resurrection. These are, these are foundational, and I imagine the first thing that probably jumps into your mind is, oh, I need to develop better Bible reading habits, or I need to pray more often. Perhaps that's true. And maybe today will be the start of pursuing those activities with more enthusiasm. But what I think might help us as we close this morning is to consider how we think about and approach the ordinary times in the day-to-day, the, the regular mundane stuff that we often don't think about. I recognize that all of our situations are a bit different. There's no kind of cookie-cutter model here. So I'm going to pose some questions for you to think about this week as, as we leave here and the realities of the resurrection and to see how the resurrection then shapes these ordinary everyday activities that, that we might not think about. I invite you to consider this week how a regular weeknight meal with your husband or your wife or your kids or with a friend can be transformed into a rhythm of remembering the reality of your resurrection life in Christ. To consider how your time at work can be transformed into a rhythm of remembering the reality of your resurrection life in Christ. How can your time as you meet with friends, either face-to-face in a small group or a phone call, can be transformed into a rhythm of remembering the reality of your resurrection life in Christ? How can your habits of work and rest and the way that you practice Sabbath be transformed into a rhythm of remembering the reality of your resurrection life in Christ? We could go on and on about these things But what I encourage you to think about are the small things, the everyday things. If you'd like some resources to help you about these things, I found uh, Eugene Peterson's Living the Resurrection and Practice Resurrection to be very helpful. There's a number of good titles that, that talk about these things and help us to think about these things. But it's these little moments that make up the majority of our week. And they all belong to God. They're all in need of being shaped by the resurrection. So I wonder how you will use these moments this week as opportunities to remind yourself, to remind others, that in Christ we are justified to God. In Christ we have new life by the Spirit. In Christ we too have the guarantee of a resurrection life now and forever. I pray that as you practice these rhythms of remembering, that you find yourself in those little everyday moments singing our victory song. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It is gone. Christ is risen. Let's pray. Our gracious, loving God, we give you thanks for the hope that we have in the resurrection. We give you thanks for Christ. We ask for your help to think about these things, to meditate, on the words that Luke has written here in his gospel. Lord, that you drive them deep down into our hearts, that you help us to consider the little everyday moments and how everything comes under the umbrella of resurrection life, that this is our reality in Jesus. 
Help us to think about these things this week, Lord. Help us to marvel at you and all that you have done through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.